Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. Questions haunt every life, writes Andy Crouch. The first, what are we meant to be? The second, why are we so far from what we're meant to be? Welcome to Restoring the Soul. I'm Michael John Cusick, and this is the podcast that helps you close the gap between what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. Welcome to the program. I'm always thrilled when you come back to listen again and again. And today on the program, I am talking with my old friend, Wynne Collier, who is a writer, pastor, and thinker. And Wynne describes himself this way. I've always been clumsy with hammers and power tools, but words have become those trusted friends slung on my utility belt. They've helped me make sense of my life and work, both as a writer and a pastor, and it's impossible for me to untangle the two. Words help me see the world. They help me ask the questions I simply must ask. Words allow me to put flesh and bone on life and on faith. As Flannery O'Connor said, I write to discover what I know. Indeed, Wynn Collier is not just an author, but a writer, and his columns have appeared in the Washington Post, Christianity Today, the Christian Century, Relevant, and a whole host of others. His books, three nonfiction works, which include Restless Faith, Holy Curiosity, and my personal favorite, Let God, which is subtitled The Transforming Wisdom of Francois Fenelon. His recent work of fiction, his first fiction work, is Love Big, Be Well. And it's a book which Eugene Peterson has this to say. This book is a tour de force, an angle on understanding the life of both congregation and pastor that exceeds anything I have ever read. No directions, no programs, just an immersion into what really takes place in the life of a congregation and a pastor. Wynn Collier's writing is alive. Not bad words from the man who authored The Message and about 50 other books. So Wynn lives in Charlottesville, Virginia, with his wife, Miska, who is a spiritual director. He pastors All Souls Church in Charlottesville. He holds a Ph.D. from the University of Virginia, where his dissertation and work centered on the intersection of literary fiction and religion, and his dissertation was on the sacramental reality of Wendell Berry's fictional town of Port William. So if you're a fan of Wendell Berry, you will really enjoy my conversation with Wynn. So let's jump into part one of my conversation with Wynn as we dive into his new book, Love Big, 
be well. Wynn Collier, my long-lost friend, uh, thanks for making time to talk with me today about your new book. Well, I'm really honored that you invited me, and it is actually very good to hear your voice again. And also with you. It's been uh, way too many years since I've seen you, even though we've we've stayed in touch from a distance. Your new book, uh, which is your fourth book, is that correct? That's right. Your new book is called Love Big, Be Well, Letters to a Small Town Church. And it's a very uh, rich, uh, deep book written um, in, in a way that's very atypical. So it's a, it's a series of letters that go back and forth between a pastor and his congregation. And my first question is, why did you go from writing three nonfiction books to a novel? And then secondly, why did you choose this, this format of letters? Well, I think I was always afraid of writing a novel. I think really deep in my heart, being a storyteller is really who I am. And I love fiction, but... I wasn't sure I had the chops to, to write fiction. And uh, it seemed like the last thing the world needed was another bad novel. So I think I just was really hesitant about that, even though along the way I've written some short stories and submitted them to some contests and always had them you know, kindly rejected and, and that sort of thing. But in this particular occasion, what happened was a, a friend of mine actually who lives near you guys in Colorado – sent me an email. Her church was searching for a pastor and she was just curious if I had any, you know, any advice for their search team. She was, she was on the search team and there was something about that email and where it took me. I I just, I've been in on both sides of that, um, of that equation, both searching for someone and then looking for a church to serve. And it just, I don't know, it just made my stomach turn kind of because um, that whole process often is just really goofy and, and sometimes even dehumanizing. And, and I, I sent her a letter, uh, an email back and I'm, I imagine it was probably pretty unhelpful, but it, it just led me to writing a story. And the story was this exhausted, um, search committee of a church, Granby Presbyterian in Granby, Virginia, writing a letter instead of sending out these sort of mass forms um, and it landing um, with uh, Jonas McCann, this exhausted pastor who was selling insurance out of a cubicle and uh, these two exhausted groups of people finding one another and the friendship that developed and the very human encounter that happened in the actual art of handwritten letters and the story of love big we be well is just what emerged out of that uh, out of that encounter so when with that introduction would you do me the favor of reading the letter that the search committee wrote to potential pastors out of your book sure be happy to dear potential pastor thank you for your interest in Granby presbyterian church We're a pretty vanilla congregation, though we do have enough ornery characters to keep a pastor hopping. If you've got a sense of humor, you're not likely to get bored. We pay as much as we can, though it's never enough. Your job is hard, and we know it. I think you'd find us grateful for your prayers and your sermons, and even more grateful for eating apple fritters with us at the Donut Palace. 
We do have a few questions for you. Perhaps we're foolish, but I'm going to assume you love Jesus and aren't too much of a loon when it comes to your creed. We want theology, but we want the kind that will pierce our soul or prompt tears or leave us sitting in a calm silence. The kind that will put a smack dab in the middle of the story. The kind that will work well with a bit of Billy Collins or Mary Carr now and then. Oh, and we like a good guffaw. I'll be up front with you. We don't trust a pastor who never laughs. We'll put up with a lot, but that one's a deal killer. So here are our questions. We'd like to know if you're going to use us. Will our church be your opportunity to right all the church's wrongs, the ones you've been jotting down over your vast 10 years of experience? Sorry, I'm one of the ornery ones. Is our church going to be your opportunity to finally enact that one flaming vision you've had in your crosshairs ever since seminary? That one strategic model that will finally get this church thing straight? Or might we hope that our church could be a place where you'd settle in with us and love alongside us, cry with us, and curse the darkness with us, and remind us how much God's crazy about us? In other words, the question we want answered is very simple. Do you actually want to be our pastor? I'm trying to be straight as I know how. Will you love us? And will you teach us to love one another? Will you give us God and all the mystery and possibility that entails? Will you preach with hope and wonder in your heart? Will you tell us again and again about the love that will not let us go? Not ever. Will you believe with us and for us that the kingdom is truer than we know and that there are no shortcuts? Will you tell us the truth that the huckster promise of a quick fix or some glitzy church dream is 100% BS? Thank you, Wynn. That is beautiful writing. And then right after that section, uh, in italics, there's just two sentences, and it says Amy, who's the main character in addition to the pastor in the book, she placed that letter on the table, and the other three members of the search committee stared at the page silent. Then one by one, they took the pen and signed their names. So truly, your, your writing is, is so beautiful and eloquent and rich. Uh, it's just really easy to read, and I love just, even as you're reading this now, just closing my eyes and listening. But you could not have written those words without, at some level, walking through both experiences of, on the one side, the traditional aspect of what later in the book is called the search committee that had become a circus, and then what you're describing here, which is a very different way of doing things. So how does your own story relate to this? Well, I I think sometimes the church can be one of the most exhausting and isolating places that exist, which is such a tragedy because it's the very place where Jesus said, come unto me, all of you who are so weary and heavy laden, all of you who are alone, um, all of you who are carrying heavy burdens by yourself, come and find rest. And oftentimes the church is not a place of deep friendship. And, It's not a place of belonging and being known. And, and there's this pressure to, uh, often to be something that you're not, um, to become some kind of 
vibrant community that's taking on some radical way in the world. And it just often steamrolls over the actual people who are there. But then on reverse, I remember early on in, in writing this, I, I had in mind this experience where I was candidating at a church. And I remember being in that circle and there were a lot of important and powerful people in the room and they were drilling me with all kinds of questions. And I remember at one moment just recognizing, oh, they're expecting me to be the expert and I'm supposed to be wearing the hat of the expert and I'm supposed to have some really expert answers. But I knew that that wasn't true. <laughs> I, I didn't have the kind of answers they were looking for. And I just remember how disorienting that felt and how many times I've been in scenarios where I was expected to uh, play a role that wasn't true to who I was. And, um, and so I think out of that, that, own, that, that sense of um, exhaustion, that sense of isolation, these words just felt really true to me. So I remember uh, reading once a quote from the short story writer Jessamine West, and I think it went something like this. She said, I'm constantly writing autobiography, but I have to turn it into fiction to give it credibility. Um, obviously, what you just described, some of it is out of your own story, but overall, how much of the story in the novel is autobiographical? Yeah, it's a good, really good question. I, I mean, definitely Jonas McCann, the pastor, he's, I mean, he's not me. Um, he's different from me. But at the same time, uh, my fingerprints seem like they're all, all through it. So in some ways, I'm not really sure. I almost feel like people in the church that I pastor might be better judges of, of uh, how much this feels like me or not like me. Certainly the themes in it are very much part of my own, my own narrative. There were, I wrote the majority of this while I was on sabbatical two and a half years ago. And I, there were moments where I would step away from the, you know, the, the keyboard and, and I would, I would have, my eyes would be misty because there was just something that, that was, uh, being deeply drawn out of my own, um, my own desires, my own longings, my own frustration, and, um, just things that felt very alive and true. So I think thematically there's a lot, um, when it actually gets to the details of biography and that sort of thing, you know, probably further from me. Yeah, it's obvious because I, I've known you, I think, maybe 15 or a little over that years, that your own theology and your own experience of God comes out all throughout the book as it, as it does in your nonfiction work. Um, you, you wrote here, for example, and this is on page 26 for geeks that want to look this up. Uh, you said, our entire story is predicated on the assumption that we're massive screw-ups. What's supposed to be unique to Christians is how we're the first to recognize the trouble we're in, uh, in the first place, to cry uncle. If we want to lead in anything, it's this prayer, help me, I've made a mess of things. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I've loved about your ministry over the years, whether it's um, your, your pastoring or the soul care that you've done with church planners, is that you've always been about care and compassion and kind of meeting people where they are. And your books always do that. But talk to me about how that 
developed in you? Because your background in your training in seminary and some of how you grew up wasn't exactly this uh, this model of being able to embrace our messiness and our brokenness. Yeah, I think encountering a lot of just personal pain, um, being humbled by some of the hubris that I believed about myself and recognizing that it, it wasn't true, um, actually making a mess of things, um, all, all of those things combined together to take me into some pretty dark places. And my book, um, Restless Faith, was the bulk of it was written in a very difficult place where I was, I was trying to hold on to my faith. I was trying to, um, to let God hold on to me. And, um, so I think there's been something inside me that has always resisted Christian answers that felt like they were totally uh, separated from the actual human experience. And I didn't really know theologically how that fit early on. It just, it just didn't ring true to me. It, it wasn't, it wasn't something that was strong enough to hold me up. And then the more I learned and, and listened to the truth of the incarnation of what it truly means for Jesus to um, fully be human and to enter the human experience and it, 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 this combining of things divine and things human, it opened up a whole new category for me to think about my own life and to um, hopefully offer an invitation to others. Because I think what's often true in the church is we have these ideals that we think we're supposed to live by, and maybe we are. Uh, some of these ideals are true, but they're abstracted. They're things that we hope for, but they're things that we demand in people. And I think there's a, a big difference between demanding something of someone and hoping uh, for something good for someone. And um, so in my own life, I think at times I felt the weight of that demand and I saw um, the reality of my inability to meet that demand. And so the ability to be honest about that and to let grace enter and to allow f friendship to uh, intersect with these these places of brokenness became a, a liberating thing for me that I hope to be able to extend to others. And what are some of the demands that in ministry you felt the most, whether it's from yourself or, or others or even maybe uh, wrong beliefs about what you felt God was demanding of you? Yeah. I think for me, I guess now that we're talking, it's like it's a theme that keeps coming up. I think there's something about feeling like I'm supposed to have the answers and I often don't have the answers. Maybe that's also a result that I am a five on the Enneagram. And so uh, knowing what's true seems really important to me. And when that feels slippery, then I feel insecure. And so when I'm in a position in pastoral ministry or in a theological conversation or in how to handle someone, um, walk with someone who's really hurting or self-destructive and I don't have the answer. I don't have the silver bullet. Um, at times when I feel like I'm not meeting other people's expectations, when they have a sense of what a pastor should be or how, a, how a pastor should operate or how well a church should be doing. And, and, our church is a very normal place with all kinds of people. And Miska refers to us as a three-legged dog. And 
<laughs> and I, uh, I love that. I mean, I love that about our church. And I, I think that makes a, a wide place of generosity for lots of different kinds of people. But sometimes I feel like, you know, I'm supposed to be better. I'm supposed to have things more squared away. I'm supposed to have my everything lined up and I, and I don't. And, um, and then there's all kinds of performance things. I mean, I think we're just, I mean, our, our culture is just overwhelmed with shame. We feel shame about, uh, about all kinds of things, about not having uh, the right posture, about not knowing all the right things, about not having all the right stances. And I think in the church, uh, shame just seems to be running away. And, uh, so I think all those kinds of things can create a perfect storm where life can be really heavy and, I don't think that's the way it's supposed to be. Well, I really appreciate you uh, just being so honest about that tension that you live with. And by the way, I would have pegged you as a four on the Enneagram, not a five, but it makes it actually makes sense with your with your PhD and just how deeply you study and things like that. But how do you, as a pastor, uh, and and this probably translates over to uh, you know friend, husband, dad. Uh, how do you how do you walk that fine line between not being the expert and therefore just being who you are? And then when there's an expectation uh, that you kind of need to show up and know what to do. I don't know if this is really answering your question, but what comes to mind is is the difference between uh, being an expert and having spiritual authority. I think. Actually, lots of times when we try to be experts, that's a false identity and a, and a ego-driven posture. And I think it actually relinquishes true spiritual authority. But I think uh, when we're able to operate out of who we are and we have confidence in the Holy Spirit and we are content to listen to God rather than always think we have to have something to say. And we're content to listen to others rather than always thinking we have to have some truth to expound. Then we can operate in a kind of authority that can just change the dynamic. So sometimes um, there may be a certain expectation that may not be, you know, may or may not be the right thing. But if you can have a, a sense of spiritual authority to speak into that, to be, or maybe not even to speak, but to be actually be present in the middle of it. I've been with people who, um, in a scenario where there's been lots of anxiety, lots of, uh, worry and lots of, uh, overwhelming, um, sense of, a consternation about we have to we have to fix something we have to do something and there'll be somebody in that room or in that circle who may not even speak anything but with their very presence permeates the grace and and the presence of God and there's something about that dynamic which can change um, the whole the group's posture toward one another and toward whatever crisis is that's being faced and I think in my heart I don't know that I'm very often that kind of person but I want to be that kind of person who carries um, with them the presence of God and the hope of God's action, which I think translates into to a good kind of spiritual authority. And I, and I recognize that that's even a word that many of us don't like um, because authority has been abused so often, and that is absolutely true. But true spiritual authority is humble. It's often quiet, but when it speaks, it, 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 it speaks with a kind of conviction that illuminates and makes new possibilities emerge. And so for me, that's, that's where I go with that. 
That does answer my question, um, and it spawns another dozen questions. But the first thing is, as you were describing that kind of person with that presence, that the presence alone kind of quells the anxiety, it made me think of your wife, Miska, who's a spiritual director, and I haven't seen her in uh, several years either, but she just has that quiet, strong, godly presence that's just very, very, very calming. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely right. She is the force in our home and mm-hmm. and in many of our relationships in our church. Um, yeah, she exudes much, uh, much grace. So Mike Iaconelli once said that, that most Christians have no idea about the authority of their own life. And you, you touched on this, the difference between spiritual authority and expertise, expertise being something that you know, something that you do, kind of a, a way that you're acting or performing that you're competent at versus what you described in spiritual authority is really about being and presence. And where are you seeing that play out in your life and your ministry? So you've been a pastor in a number of churches. You're currently at All Souls in Charlottesville. And there is an emphasis on spiritual formation and on nurturing the inner life in Christ. Do you see, let me ask it this way, are you hopeful about that happening in the church as opposed to the emphasis on programs and experts and people that that just build, you know, bigger, more successful things? I am hopeful, but it's a, it's a quiet hope. <laughs> um, and I'm hopeful, and I hope this doesn't sound too cheeky here, but I, I think it's true. I, I'm hopeful because I my confidence is growing in the action of the Holy Spirit in the church and in the world. I'm not very hopeful when I look at most of the uh, places where lots of noise is being made. I'm not very hopeful when I look at uh, some of the structures that we've built. I'm certainly not hopeful when I look at the dominance uh, of social media. I think that's a toxic and destructive place right now. Um, and, but yes, I, I encounter people and they're usually very ordinary people who in their own quiet ways, in their own circles of community are voices of hope and life and love and generosity and delight and justice. And it's, it's not the kinds of things that are making most of the headlines or that's getting lots of likes and shares on Facebook, but it's places where life is genuinely happening. And there's a, a small circle of, of pastors and spiritual mentors that I can think about that just, sitting with them, having a cup of tea, um, looking out over the landscape, having a prayerful conversation, that there's something recentering about that person's presence. And it makes me know that, and it, it's, it's always people who are also very human. And by that, I just mean people who are, their life is very integrated. They, they love food and they love friendships and they love their family and their prayers don't feel put on. And, um, they, the more they grow in their life with God, the more human they become. What always makes me really, really nervous is when someone supposedly is becoming more like God and they're simultaneously becoming less and less human. And 
I see a lot of that, and I think that's a real danger. But there are lots of places where people are becoming very human. But I think because they're becoming more human, it almost inevitably means it's going to be more removed from the places that are dehumanizing, which are these abstract uh, places of prominence and noise that rip our souls apart. Uh, It's a big theme in a couple of the chapters in the book where you talk about that the role – uh, and the function of our faith is to make us more fully human. But that's a that's an idea that some people would probably push back on. No, we're supposed to become more Christ-like. And, of course, Jesus was fully God, but also fully human. But to talk a little bit more about this idea from a pastoral perspective about uh, how we're supposed to become more human. Well, when God wanted us to show us what God was like, God gave us a person, Jesus. And God said, be like that. And the God that we're to be like is the God who walked on dirt in Palestine, a God who was hungry, a human who taught us how to pray with very simple and straightforward words. Um, Jesus was a man of deep friendship. He was a man of tears. He was a man of anger at times and injustice. He was a man very given to the place where he was. And I I do think that many of us have imbibed a theology which has told us to become more like God means to become less and less attached to the world. And I I think it's exactly the opposite. I think to become more like God means to become more and more attached to the world. Now, obviously red flags, you know, go flaring all you didn't Jesus tell us not to not to love the world or anything that's in it. Well, of course, but the scripture uses the world in lots of different ways, the the word, the world. And when it's used negatively, like don't be attached to the world, it's talking about this the false systems of power that rule in the world. Um, it's not talking about the actual world itself that God created and named good. Because our theology and our story as humans doesn't begin with the fall, it begins with this creation when God made everything that exists and said it's beautiful and good. And then the way I understand the story, God said, no matter what happens, I will never abandon that good reality. And in fact, I will give my own self um, to my own ruin um, on a cross and through a resurrection. And I will go into the very bowels of hell to redeem this thing that that is good, that I've always named good and beautiful. And to me, that's at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian is to agree with God that the world is good and it's beautiful. And every human that God has ever created is beautiful and beloved and that our life is spent in that work of restoration and rescue. And so whenever we have a theology that turns against that story, I think we are inherently misunderstanding God's own existence God's own intentions, and we're misunderstanding the the very life that God has placed within us. And so I think there's going to always be this inner turmoil and all kinds of silliness and destruction happen when we turn away from the, the life that God has placed us to be as fellow rescuers with God of a good world. You've been listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick. Produced by Brian Beatty and supported by generous listeners like you. 
to learn more about our life-changing intensive counseling process for couples and individuals, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. 